everyone. Well, I guess, hello. You might not be listening to this in the morning. Hello, and welcome back to Search, Ponder, and Pray, um, the podcast where we try and uh, loosely follow the schedule of the Come Follow Me program produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I have to say that I'm, I'm, I do apologize greatly for slacking so much and not putting anything out for the past while. I've been caught up with some other projects and um, I kind of let this fall to the side and I, I apologize for that. I hope, I hope, I'm sure that you did. I hope that you have been listening to other things or continuing to read in your scriptures on your own. Um, as I always say, this is never meant to replace your own personal scripture study. This is merely to be supplemental, something to help you and your, your family or your friends uh, kind of talk about what you've been studying in Come Follow Me. So I hope um, that's been going well. Um, we're going to try our best to get back on the bandwagon and to keep pressing forward. Um, today we're going to be in Matthew 6 and 7. Um, to be honest with you, I feel a little inadequate uh, trying to discuss uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to do our best. We're going we're gonna to pray as we always do. We're going to pray first and we're going to see where the Spirit leads us. So um, I'll go ahead and say that today. Our dear Father in heaven, we are grateful for this new day that thou hast given unto us. We're grateful for the chance we have to repent and to come closer to thee. Father, we are thankful for the patience thou hast with us, and we're thankful for the many opportunities that thou lays before us. Dear Father, we ask thee to please Help us now, open our hearts and our minds, that we might be able to see what thou hast for us in the scriptures this day. Help us to bring it deep into our hearts. Help us to think and see the people in our minds who need us, or who need thee, and how we might be able to help them come closer to thee. Please forgive us of our sins, Father, and help us to know in which ways we can draw nearer to Thee and in which ways we can better ourselves. We pray for these things ever so humbly, Father, with grateful, with grateful hearts and joy in our minds and our hearts. And we say these things humbly in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So let's get back into this, shall we? Um, let's start start right off, just like we always have, in Matthew chapter 6. So we're going to start here. Um, I hope that you've kind of um, been reading uh, the, the Summer on the Mount. You've, you've read the other chapters before this and kind of been keeping up. Um, if not, I do suggest that you go ahead and read those. And study those out on your own time. We I don't we don't have the time to jump back. Um, we gotta really just press forward at this moment. Um, personally, I feel like it's a good analogy for um, repentance and forgiveness. That a lot of times um, there are there are things you can do to go back and make restitution. But a lot of times, once you have received forgiveness, you gotta press forward. Just look look to the future and press forward. Um, anyways. 
So one thing I did want to point out, one thing that I was noticing as we were talking about the um, Sermon on the Mount in Sunday school, I find it interesting that I don't know if it's at the exact, I don't think it's at the very beginning, and I don't think it's at the very end, but it's interesting how close to the beginning uh, Christ will talk about the Beatitudes, and he brings up the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed, and he brings up all these people who are doing their best, who are trying, or who are trying to be the best they can be, to lift up the world. But who, in all in all, are the downtrodden, who are people who oftentimes um, have kind of been beaten up by life. And he said, you know, he says, these are, these are some of the, the things. And then as he lays the sermon out and the sermon, and the, the sermon on the Mount continues, it ends up getting to the point where we build from blessed are ye for trying to be therefore perfect. And it almost seems like as we progress through the Sermon on the Mount, that we're slowly achieving perfection. It, and I wouldn't be surprised, I wouldn't be surprised if as you studied the Sermon on the Mount, if you looked for it, you will find the path to perfection. You'll find the path that Jesus has laid down. This is his, his seminal speech, his, his big his big moment where he lays it all down and he says, this is exactly what you need to be doing. And he's going to teach more after this, obviously. We have lots of scripture after this of teachings of him and different things. But if we wanted to wrap it all up into one moment, this is it. This is the moment. This is when Jesus says, all right, you want me to teach you exactly what I think you need to, exactly what you need to be doing? This is it. So that's one reason why I'm kind of a little bit daunted by the prospect of trying to expound upon this. And because, you know, you're taking the master, the master teacher's seminal work, his core teaching, his big moment. And you're going to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to build on this. You know, I, that's, I don't know, (laughs) but we're going to, we'll just, we'll, we're going to read through it. We're going to read through it. We're going to look at the new Testament student manual that the Institute puts out and we'll, we'll see where the spirit leads us. We will do that. All right. So the first chunk that we're going to read is chapter six, verses one through four. All right. The Lord says, take heed that you Take heed that you do not your alms before men, to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore when, ye, therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may, be, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thy alms may be in secret, and thy father which is in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Let's look at the New, New Testament student manual. All right. Do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Alms. Alms can be defined as acts of righteousness or religious devotion, including acts of service or charity. President Dallin H. Oaks helps us understand the Savior's teaching that our service should be done for right reasons. So, this is what 
President Oak says. Some may serve for hope of earthly reward. Such a man or woman might serve in church positions or in private acts of mercy in an effort to achieve prominence or cultivate contacts that would increase income or aid in acquiring wealth. Others might serve in order to obtain worldly honors, prominence, or power. In contrast, those who serve quietly, even in secret, qualify for the Savior's promise that thy father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Charity is the pure love of Christ. The Book of Mormon teaches us that this virtue is the greatest of all. If our service is to be most efficacious, it must be accomplished for the love of God and the love of His children. I know that God expects us to work to purify our hearts and our thoughts so that we may serve one another for the highest and best reasons, the pure love of Christ. Um, so I feel, I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory, you know. When, you, when you're doing your service, and that's... See, this is where, this is where the Savior um, kind of starts to, to prick hearts a little bit, and it, it starts to cause contention, especially among... Uh, the ancient Israel, I, I, I think, in, in my opinion, because he starts to explain to them that it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're keeping the commandments. You can, you can keep every commandment. You can follow the law of Moses to the T, and you still won't get into heaven. Not in the way you want to. Not in the way you think so. You're not going to get in in this way that's going to be, you're the best one. You know, it's, that's not how it works. And that's one thing that he teaches over and over and over again. Um, just a little, a, little, a little side note here. If you haven't watched The Chosen, uh, it's, a, it's a TV series put out by Angel Studios about the life of Christ. If you haven't watched The Chosen, I'd highly recommend it. It's free to watch. You can download the app uh, in the App Store or... Um, on Google Play, anywhere you can, or you can, I'm pretty sure you can watch them for free on YouTube as well. Um, regardless, in there, they, they talk a lot about this, about how there were several teachings where Christ, you know, like the story of the wedding garment, where the story was, was plainly laid out to say, the original invitees, the original chosen people, the Israelites were the ones who first rejected the word. And so then the Lord said, get anyone else who will listen, get anyone else who will come and bring them to the wedding feast. And even then there were some of those who wouldn't come. And even then some of those that did come, there was at least one man who decided he didn't need to follow the commandments and he got kicked out. And so we see in this, in this wedding garment story, and also here in this teaching here that Christ is laying out, that it there's a duality, there's a balance. And this is one thing my wife kind of makes fun of me a little bit for. I say, I say this all the time. Balance is so important. Balance is the key. You have to keep the commandments, but the commandments can't become your God. You can't follow the commandments so wholly that they become the sole thing that, that gives you purpose in life. That's when you, follow, you fall into the trap of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, and all the others who had fallen into the same trap when Christ first came. It's one thing that I worry a little bit about sometimes um, 
about when he comes again. Will we as a people be so caught up in the rules that when Christ comes, we'll struggle because he isn't so set on the rules? Now, don't get me wrong. There is the other side to it. There is the other side to it. The man who came to the wedding feast without the wedding garment on, he was forcefully ejected from the wedding party. Because you still have to follow the rules. It's not to say the rules aren't important. The rules are very important. You have to follow certain steps. You have to take certain measures. If you want certain rewards, you have to do certain things. But why are you doing them? Why? And that's the key question that Christ is trying to get into the minds of people. He's trying to t teach the, the people at this time on the Sermon on the Mount, why are you doing it? And that's the hard question we have to ask ourselves. Why? Are we doing it? Are we doing it because we want our parents to see that we're, that we're doing a good job? Are we doing it because we want the bishop to see that we're doing a good job? And oh, you know, oh yeah, that... Uh, that that brother so and so, that sister so and so, man, they're they're so they're, they do such a good job with their calling. Maybe we maybe we should recommend them for being bishop, or maybe we should recommend them for being the elders quorum or relief society president. And yeah, and now now they have this honorific calling, and ooh, oh, ha ha, mm -hmm. I'm so I'm so important in the church. No, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter. It does not matter. What matters, you can, that's the thing that the Lord, I feel like the Lord would try and get through our minds, is that perhaps in his mind, one of the most important callings would be the nursery leader or a primary teacher of the young children. I'm sure, I am sure that if he was going to choose a calling for himself, that is most probably the calling he would choose for himself. Christ showed an unending abundance of love for the small children. They are very precious to him. And to do what you have been asked to do, to fulfill the commands of the Lord, not because you want glory, not because you want to fulfill a checklist, but because you want to serve the Lord, and because you love Him and you love His children. That is where the difference is made. That is where you find the balance. Why are you keeping the commandments? And we're going to continue on with that. In verse 5, he says, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Let's jump over to the New Testament student manual and see what is said. we got a little... Um, snippet from Elder Bruce R. McConkie, who describes some of the prayer practices that the Savior warned against in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Devout Jews at set times faced Jerusalem, covered their heads, cast their eyes downwards, 
and ostentatiously went through a ritual of prayer. In the hour of prayer, if the hour of prayer found them in the streets, so much the better, for all men would see their devoutness. To attract attention by saying one's own prayers aloud in the synagogue was not uncommon. Such were among the practices of the day. Now, here's, um, here's an interesting thought to think about. How do we contrast this with um, the Savior's admonition to be um, a light to the world, to be a city that is set on a hill? He says, do men light a candle and put it on, to put it under a bushel? N- no, but a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. He's admonishing us to be an example. But here, here he's saying, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So let's click on closet. When he says, enter thou into thy closet. All right, and that's going to take us over to Alma chapter 33, verses 4 through 11. And it's more specifically going to say verse 7. And Alma's talking about when he went to his closet and prayed. Um, let's see. And then in chapter 34, verse 26. So let's, 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 let's read this one. I think this is a good one to, to read. It. It's going to point out something, I think. Uh, in Alma chapter 34, verses 17 through 27. Therefore may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that ye begin to call upon his holy name, that that he would have mercy upon you. Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto him. Cry unto him when ye are in your fields, yea, over all your flocks. Cry unto him in your houses, yea, over all your household, both morning, midday, and evening. Yea, cry unto him against the power of your enemies. Yea, cry unto him against the devil, who is an enemy to all righteousness. Cry unto him over the crops of your fields, that they may prosper, that ye may prosper in them. Cry over your flocks of your fields, that they may increase. But this is not all. Ye must pour out your souls in your closets, and in your secret places, and in your wilderness. Yea, When you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare, and also for the welfare of those who are around you. So, this seems to be a little contradictory, don't you think? The Lord is saying, but when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And over here, Alma is saying, when you're out at work, you pray over your work. When you're out driving, you pray over your driving. When you're, you know, whatever you're doing, you're praying about it. You're always constantly praying. He also talks about entering into your closet and pouring out your soul. So, this is something that needs to be kind of, kind of worked through, in my opinion. The Lord says to, to pray in, the, in your closet. Alma says to pray in your closet, but Alma also says to pray in the fields, and the Lord says to be an example of the believers by being a city that is set on a hill, a light, you know, 
candlestick, 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 all those things. Again, it comes down to the intention. Why are you praying publicly? I was listening to Jared Halverson uh, on the Unshaken podcast. If you have time, I would suggest going over there and listening to him as well. Um, it's an excellent podcast. But he was talking about who are you? Who are you praying to? When you pray, the way the Lord say, the way the Lord is talking about these people who are praying in the streets and in the synagogues, that they may be seen of men. And he talks about, and Elder McConkie talks about it as well. Jared, Jared Halverson talks about, who are you praying to? When you say your prayers, are you praying to the people around you? Are you giving this grandiose performance that people might look at you and be like, man, he is so spiritual. That is amazing. Or are you praying to have a conversation with the Lord? Are you praying because that's what the Lord has asked that you do? It makes quite the difference, whatever the choice is. And it's something that we have to continuously seek in ourselves. The Lord's going to talk quite a bit about prayer here and the, and the importance of it. So he continues on, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. But not ye, but, but not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth all things ye have need of before ye ask him. This is something that I I know that I'm guilty of. And need to do better at. There are times when I pray, and you hear you've heard this this I'm sure you've heard this um idea before. There are times when I pray and the prayer doesn't get past the roof. <laughs> it hits the ceiling and just bounces off. Because it's not going anywhere. I'm not praying to anyone. I'm just saying my prayer just to say it and get it done with. Let's jump over it real quick uh, before we get too far into it. Um, over to the student manual for vain repetitions. Um, verse 7. The Elder Joseph E. Worthland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explains what is meant by vain, by vain repetitions, how we can avoid them in our, in our prayers. He says, Our prayers become hollow when we say similar words in similar ways over and over so often that the words become more of a recitation than a communication. This is what the Savior described as vain repetitions. Do our prayers at times sound and feel the same? Have you ever said a prayer mechanically? the words pouring forth as though cut from a machine. Do you sometimes bore yourself as you pray? Will, prayer, will prayers that do not demand much of your thought merit much attention from our Heavenly Father? When you find yourself getting into a routine with your prayers, step back and think. Meditate. Look for a while on the things for which you really are grateful. Look for them. They don't have to be grand or glorious. Think of those things you truly need. Bring your goals and your hopes and your dreams to the Lord and set them before Him. 
Heavenly Father wants us to approach him and ask for his divine aid. It continues on, the student manual continues on, ask your, your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask. Some people might ask, what purpose is served in asking for blessings if Heavenly Father already knows what we need? Through prayer, we acknowledge our dependence on the Lord, exercise our faith in His ability to bestow desired blessings, and acknowledge that ultimately, all blessings come from Him. Approached properly, prayer helps us evaluate our lives and align with the will of God. Elder David E. Sorensen taught that one reason we pray is, to beca is because the, progress, the process of prayer changes us. I believe that our Heavenly Father teaches us to pray because the very act of praying will improve us. We worship our heavenly Fa we worship our Father in heaven as all-knowing and all-powerful. Surely as our Creator, He knows our cares, our worries, our joys, our struggles without our informing Him. The reason our Heavenly Father asks us to pray cannot be that we are able to tell Him something He does not already know. Rather, the reason He asks us to pray is, th is that the process of learning to communicate effectively with Him will shape and change our lives. The Bible Dictionary teaches us, that, ye, that we also pray to gain blessings the Lord desires to give us, but requires us to ask for. Prayer is the act by which the will of the Father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. The object of prayer is not to change the will of God, but to secure for ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant, but that are made conditional on our asking for them. Blessings require some work or effort on our part before we can obtain them. Prayer is a form of work and is an appointed means of obtaining the highest of all blessings. Prayer is something that is very sacred. I think, and the fact that we believe um, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that the heavens are open. That not only are we just laying our souls bare before the Lord, but He is going to sit down with us and respond. That should be a very sacred and hallowed thing. My hope is that as we each approach prayer, in the coming days that we will all take time, myself included, obviously, to step back and really think that, think about it in a way that you're about to enter a room with the Lord and discuss with Him the events of the day and the things you need and all those kinds of things. I... <laughs> I guarantee you that if if you if if we were to walk into a room and he was just sitting there, say we walk into our living room and he's sitting on on the couch, and we sit down on the couch across from him or in the chair next to him or something like that, and he he sits down and tells us and he says, "Why don't you tell me how it's going? It's been a while. I haven't heard from you." I I don't imagine that we're just gonna. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Thank you for all that was given us. Please help us to have a good day. Please help us to be safe. Uh, and yeah, and that's it. 
No, I think I think that we would we would slow it down and we would take the time to really really consider what we're going to say because that is the creator of all. That is the God of the universe sitting there next to us who's asking us how our day is going. Who's asking us what it is we need. And we like 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 he's talked about here. The Lord knows. He's he's not he's not so oblivious to our lives. Oh, well, I just remembered that you're here. Uh, what do you need? Uh, you know, well, I'm I'm here at the moment. So what do you need before I go? No, that's not what he, this is for. That's not what the Lord wants us to pray. The Lord doesn't need us to pray. We need us to pray. It's our chance. The Lord has given us. He has laid it out before us and said, I want a relationship with you. I want to have a relationship with you. And he's, it's, that, it's that painting, that famous painting of God reaching out and man despondently, despondently reaching back with his finger and his hand kind of in a droop. I don't know if you've seen that painting. It's a, it's an, it's a, it's a great painting and a very good depiction, I think, of the natural state of man. Maybe not even the natural state, just the natural state. It is, it is the, the lax state of trying to achieve righteousness. I'll reach my arm out and I'll kind of droop my hand, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to put in a hundred percent. I don't have time to put in a hundred percent. I've got other things that are pressing. I need to pick up milk. I need to go do this. I need to make sure that this is taken care of. I've got deadlines to meet. The house is a mess. All, whatever, whatever, whatever. And yet God is reaching out. He's stretched out as far as he can. But he can't do the whole thing for us. I know that I am guilty of this. Not putting in 100%. And sometimes it's the Lord smacks me upside the head as I'm praying or as I'm going about my day, and he says, how is this more important than the eternal? You have an eternal life approaching. You have eternity that's waiting for you. You have all of these things set up, ready to go. And you're focused on these little things, on these little pieces of paper called money. You're focused on these, the, the, the little smiles and the prominence that you get from social interactions. You're concerned about that. When give it a hundred years, that's not going to matter. You're an eternal being. You are an eternal being. All of this will go away before you do. So why are you focused on it so much? You're caught in the trap. Where is your focus? Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you, are we praying to develop that relationship with the Lord? Are we trying to regain that power? The connection with him? Or are we just saying our prayers because, well, I better say my prayers because if we don't say prayers before the food, then mom and dad are going to be upset that we're not praying anymore. Or, we, I mean, that's just what we do. We say prayers. You know, we just close our eyes. We say the quick prayer, you know, and we just smash everything all together. It's a quick recitation. Don't let's say it quick. We're all hungry. Let's get it done. Prayer is something special. 
And I think we need to remember that it is. All right. We've harped on that enough. We're going to spend, we can't spend all day on it. We've got, you know, that, that, this is the problem. This is one of the reasons why I was so hesitant to talk about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, because it is so rich. It is so cram-packed, full of information, that if we study it with the Spirit in mind, and we, we really try and study it, not just read it. I've, you know, we've all read the Sermon on the Mount multiple times, and if you haven't, you should. Uh, but <laughs> we've all read it several times. We've all had that experience. But this is this is a set of scriptures that you can study for your entire life, and you'll never get through it all. This is very akin to, in my opinion, this is very akin to the temple experience. There's a reason it was recorded down and written for us to study again and again and again. I believe, I firmly believe, that the path to perfection can be found herein. Yes, you need to go to the temple. Yes, you need to get baptized. Yes, you need to do all these different things to achieve exaltation and those different things. But if you want to find your day-to-day living path on how you need to be to come closer to the Savior, it's right here. The Lord has laid out and said, this is where I am. This is how I walk. This is what I do. If you want to be with me, here you go. He has done everything he possibly can. Now we're going to get on to the way, the way he's praying. But not, but not ye like unto them, for your father knoweth things you need before you ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. And we see here in this prayer the respect that the Lord has for his father, the way he prays, the beauty of it, He lays it out for us. So let's keep going. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. How simple is that? And see, here's the thing. Simple prayers might be all that's required. Especially if you're in public. A simple prayer might be all that's required. The Lord lays it out. He has immense respect for the Father. So let's jump over to the to the student manual. President Oaks talks about hallowed be thy name, the, the special language of prayer. So President Oaks taught that we should use special prayer language when addressing our, he- our Father in heaven. When we go to worship in the temple, in a temple, or a church, we put aside our working clothes and dress ourselves in something better. This change of clothing is a mark of respect. Similarly, when we address our Father in heaven, we should put aside our our working words and clothe our prayers in special language of reverence and respect. In offering prayers in the English language, 
Members of our church do not address our Heavenly Father in the same words as, they, as we use in speaking to a fellow worker, to an employee or an employer, or to a merchant in the marketplace. We use special words that have been sanctified by use in inspired communications, words that have been recorded, to, have been recommended to us and modeled for us by those we sustain as prophets and inspired teachers. The special language of prayer follows different forms in different languages, but the principle is always the same. We should address prayers to our Heavenly Father in words which speakers of that language associate with love and respect and reverence and closeness. I've always found it interesting. I don't know about other languages, but I know in English we use the thee and the thy, which are typically reserved for great respect. <clears throat> well, in the Germanic, in, in German, um, when, when we pray in German, there is the formal uh, way of addressing someone, and then there's the personal way of addressing someone. And in German, um, you almost always use the formal when you're talking with somebody, unless it's a, a good friend or a child. Um, or a parent, or something like that. You, then you use the personal, or informal, I guess is what it's technically called. But so, and I remember when I was first learning German, I thought, well, you know, you, you'd pray in the formal because you, you're needing to be very formal with our Heavenly Father. And I was corrected by the Germans. They said, no, 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 no. You use the personal because Heavenly Father, the Lord, is your friend, He's your Father. You don't use the formal with your father. You use the personal. Because he personally knows you and you personally know him. Or at least you should. Or better, better put, you do, you just don't remember. <laughs> I can go on forever, I think, talking about prayer. It's something that's so important to me. And it's something that's so important to the Lord. I hope that as we study this and as we continue to go through it, it, it sinks into all of our hearts the importance and the power and the, the glory of prayer. Let's move on to thy kingdom come. Jesus Christ taught, taught that we should pray for the kingdom of God to come. As president of the church, President Thomas S. Monson called upon the saints to petition the Lord in prayer to open those areas of the world where the gospel is not currently allowed to preach. <clears throat> he says, the church is steadily growing. It has, sent, it has since its organization over 178 years ago. There remain, however, areas of the world where our influence is limited and where we are not allowed to share the gospel freely. As did President Spencer W. Kimball over 32 years ago, I urge you to pray for the opening of those areas that we might share with them the joy of the gospel. As we prayed, when in response to President Kimball's pleadings, we saw miracles unfold as country after country, formerly closed to the church, was opened. Such will transpire again as we pray with faith. Jump ahead. Lead us, not into, lead us not into temptation. The Joseph Smith translation clarifies that the Lord does not 
lead us into temptation. He says, and suffer us not to be led into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a small clarification. I think we could we could we understand that. We understand that the Lord the Lord doesn't shove us into sin. Uh, what the Lord what Jesus is is praying for is he's praying that we will have the strength to overcome our weaknesses there. Let's continue on in, in, in Matthew. Verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light is the bo- the light of the body is the eye. There- if therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. And therefore the light that is in thee be darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is, the dark- is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. So let's 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 finish this this chapter, and then we'll get into it because it's all it, it all speaks to the same concept. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought therefore, thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor, ye, nor yet for your body. What, what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to, unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like unto one of these. Therefore, if God, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have what ye have need of, that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought of the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of it for itself, for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 
So this, the Lord prefaces this section with, if therefore thine eye be single. This is the, the, the kernel of it, of at least this chapter. Where is our focus? What are we, who is it that we worship? What are we truly worshiping? What, ha, what has our minds and hearts captivated? Is it the Lord? Is it God? Is it the commandments? Is it money? Is it our clothing? Is it our standing before men? Is it our job? Is it our families? What is it? Let's jump into this and we'll come back to some of my thoughts. Otherwise, I'll get lost in another rant. Single is used in this verse. It comes from the Greek word meaning sound, healthy, simple, or sincere. Knowing this definition helps us to understand the Savior's instructions concerning the giving of alms, praying, and fasting. These should all be done with a simple and sincere focus on our Father in heaven or on the recipient. We might consider such questions as, When I give to the poor, do I hope to bring glory to God or to myself? When I serve the Lord, am I doing so to receive approval from the Lord or from men? When I pray in public, am I addressing God or those in the congregation? Boom. Just backed everything up right there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, so let's jump over to take no thought. Because this is one thing that some people get a little bit worked up on. And sometimes I myself get a little bit worked up on. Of like, okay, you know. The Lord, it, it seems to me like the Lord is saying, why are you going to work? Why are you trying to do all these different things? Why don't you just go out and preach the gospel and let me take care of everything? That's a scary prospect. <laughs> I have a mortgage to pay. I've got kids to feed. I've got you know, all these different things that need to be taken care of, you know, and I'm sure that many of you do as well. And the idea of well, put in your two weeks notice. Actually, forget that. Just call them in today and say you're not coming in forever. You're not coming back in at all. And put on put on your clothes, get dressed up, go out and find out places where I need to be served. Find find places that need help. Find people who need the gospel and do what Jesus would do. That's frightening. <laughs> That's really frightening. So let's see what what the New Testament student manual says. Maybe it'll give us some, um, some comfort. We'll see. The Greek phrase that translated to take no thought in Matthew 6, 25 and 34 of the King James Version means to not be overly anxious or worried about. All right. Although the Joseph Smith translation of these verses and the versions in 3 Nephi 13, 25 through 34 indicate that these teachings were directed specifically to the apostles, they are applicable to each of us. The Lord is teaching all of us that we are not to let worldly concerns cause us to lose trust in our Father in heaven or become diverted from seeking his kingdom. Hmm. <laughs> so this is something that I have heard before, and it does give me some comfort um, in knowing that this teaching is specifically applied to the apostles and those who have been called. Uh, specifically by the Lord, um, to serve wholeheartedly in the kingdom. Not just to, not just to fulfill their, their callings on Sunday or throughout the week or different things like that, but they have, they have been called and told, no, from now until you die, 
you are going to travel the world and talk to everyone you can and try and convince them of the truth. And I will take care of everything else. Let me take care of everything else. There are those who are called to do that, yes. The majority of us are not. The majority of us have been called, as shown in the proclamation to the world, the family, have been called to other tasks, are called to be fathers, are called to be mothers. If you are called to be a father, your job is to preside, provide, and protect. It is laid out in the proclamation. It is laid out in Scripture. Your duty as a father is to provide for the means of your family, to take care of them, to protect them from the evils of the world, and to preside in the home as the head, in conjunction with your wife, who, as a mother, has been called to nurture, nourish, and provide a spiritually safe, sound, and happy environment where children can be nourished and find the good word of God and come closer to Him in the safety of the home as she helps to nourish their learning and foster their growth. Okay? So those things become first and foremost. Now, now you balance that out with take ye no thought. Then comes into the question, and one that my family has wrestled with recently. What is it that you really need to preside, provide, and protect, to nourish, to be at the home? Those kinds of things. Do you need designer clothes? Do you need the largest house? Do you need a three, uh, a six-digit income? To be honest with you, depending on how many kids you have, maybe you do need a six-digit income. Who knows? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying anything's a bad thing. What I'm saying is the Lord has specifically asked us to not be overly anxious about our worldly standing. If you break it down and say, what do I really need? What, what, are, what are honest to goodness needs and how much do those cost me? I think we'll find that the price is a lot lower than what we originally thought. We, we get so caught up with the, the needs and the, the things that are before us that I think too often we let the world blind our eyes and we think oh well you know i want to i want to make sure that we're well off and i want to make sure that you know all these different kinds of things and it's like is it necessary is it necessary one thing i do think is necessary person personally i think that getting out of debt is necessary the Lord has said so um, in different, if you, if you look at different financial classes and different things that the church has presented, one of the things they, they highly recommend is don't go into debt. And they will make exceptions. There are times to, that going into debt is understandable. Buying a home, education, those types of things. But even in those situations, if you can not go into debt or if you can speedily get out of debt, it is highly encouraged that you do so. 
because the one thing that none of us like to think about very much is how debt is financial bondage. Right? And that's one of those things of, are we going into debt because we want to, oh, well, we want to go out to eat or we want to buy those nice clothes or there's that really nice new car that we could buy. Um, our old car works fine, but this new car, I mean, it's really cool and people would think I was pretty cool and I would think I was pretty cool if I had it. And I mean, our credit limit would allow it. So why not? You know, I mean, we, we, we can make the payments. It'll be fine. Where's your focus? You're overly concerned about the things of the world, right? You might think I'm wrong here, and I might be wrong. I don't know. This is my personal opinion on that. The Lord wants us to focus, keep our focus on the right things. Are we focused on the Lord because we want the kingdom to come? We want to build up his kingdom. Or are we focused on our kingdom, on trying to build up our kingdom on this earth? I can tell you right now, it doesn't matter how grand your kingdom is. When his kingdom comes, it will trump all others. It will take precedence over all others. And his kingdom will not fail. Ours will. Unless we tie ourselves to him. Kind of jumping into the same thing, seeking first the kingdom of God. All right, so President Ezra Taft Benson explained why we should place God and his kingdom above all else in our lives. Look at this, being backed up by a prophet. That's nice. Um, when, we, when we put God first, all other things fall into their proper place to drop out of our lives. Our love of the Lord will govern the claims of our affection. The demands on our time with interest we pursue and the order of our priorities. We should put God ahead of everyone else in our lives. We should give God, the Father of our spirits, an exclusive preeminence in our lives. He has a prior parental claim on our eternal welfare ahead of all other ties that may bind us here or hereafter. President Dallin H. Oaks made a similar observation when he said, Seek first to build up the kingdom of God. It means to assign first priority to God and his work. The work of God is to bring to pass the eternal life of his children and all that this entails. As someone has said, if we do not choose the kingdom of God first, it will make little difference in the long run what we have chosen instead. And for the last little bit, sufficient, is the day, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Matthew's counsel from the Savior, not, no thought for the morrow, means do not borrow trouble from tomorrow. You have enough to deal with today. Which is good, which is pretty good advice, <laughs> I think. Um, especially for myself. I feel like a lot of times I get so anxious about tomorrow and I start thinking about, well, tomorrow I need to get this done, I need to get this done. And I've got these things coming up. And the Lord is saying, you're missing today. You've got today. You've got things you got to worry about today. Stay in the here and now. Don't concern yourself with the things that have already passed and don't concern yourself with the things that haven't even happened yet. You're here. Trust in the Lord. Trust that the Lord is going to be with you and he's going to help you and he does care for you. That he's going to help. 
All right. Takes a lot. And here's the thing, you know, the Lord lays these things out. And I think it was Elder Ballard who once talked about the road to perfection. And he said, even, you know, say that one day, there's one day where you really focus and you take the day really good and slow and very carefully and you do everything. You keep every commandment. You do everything perfect and you, perfect and you commit no sin. You do nothing out of place. You follow the path perfectly. And he says, that's great. Now you got to do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. You know, it's, it's the continuation and the, and the repetition and the building upon that. And it's not, I did it once. Ta-da, I'm good. I'm good. I'm done. The Lord knows that we're going to struggle, that we need to build up to it. He, Elder, Elder Maxwell talks about that discipleship is to be lived in crescendo. If you don't know what crescendo means, it's a musical term which means to start, you start off in a, in a lower volume and you gradually build in power and intensity and volume. It's not just, it's not just, just louder and louder and louder, but a gradual growing. It's kind of, you could compare it to, um, if you've ever kind of been to a bonfire, if, if you've been to a, like a big bonfire and they haven't just doused the whole thing with gasoline, so it just immediately just, boom, you know, giant flames, but where it's started with a single match, there's a little match, and you light the tinder, and the tinder slowly kindles and it starts to burn, and then you push that into some smaller sticks, and those sticks start to burn, and the fire starts to grow, and then it gets to some bigger twigs and those branches, and then suddenly it starts to grow and grow, and finally it starts to burn the logs, and suddenly you have this big, as it slowly builds, you have this roaring fire that's so warm and bright and powerful. But it all started from this tiny match. And slowly, if, if, if you've experienced it, you know, if it's a cold day and you're, you're waiting for this fire, you're, you're all huddled around um, and the match gets lit and no one can feel that warmth. No one but the fingers of the person who's just lit it, probably. And they, they light the kindling and as they start to work it, then their hands start to feel the warmth and they start to feel that. And then, then the, 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 the other twigs start to catch. Then maybe the, that, the, the person working the fire, their arms start to feel it. And then as it gets to the larger branches, then now, now they fully feel it and the people around start to fully feel it. And then as it lights the, the larger branches, then suddenly everyone's like, oh, nice, good, nice warm fire. And then it catches the big logs and the fire starts to get roaring. And soon everyone has to take a step back. You know, because it's, it's, now it's, it's a little, little warm. It's, it's a little hot now. That's what the Lord expects of us. He knows. And sometimes, you know, it might, our fires might be a fire like I struggled with as a, as a Boy Scout back when I was younger. It takes a few matches. It takes, maybe it takes more than a few matches. Maybe it takes quite a few matches and, and maybe a little bit of gasoline. You know, <laughs> maybe it does take a little bit to get things going because you just can't figure out how to build a fire properly. But the Lord understands that it's going to take time. That's one of the reasons why he has prepared a way for us to repent. I don't want to be sacrilegious in saying this, but the Lord did not go and uh, take upon himself the atonement. He did not perform the atonement just because he thought it was going to be a fun thing to do or because he wanted it to look good in everyone's eyes. 
that would have been quite possibly one of the most damning things anyone could have ever done. The Lord performed the atonement because he loves you. Because he wants to see you again. He wants to see you at the dinner table in the next life. He wants to sit down next to you like you would with an old friend that you haven't seen in a long time and start up with that good old conversation starter. So how you been? I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? He wants you there. And he wants your family there. He wants to see you. He wants to sit down with you after dinner, on the couches, around the table, just relaxing, around the coffee table, just enjoying time together, talking. Him asking you about stories, things that have happened in your life. And you know that he knows, but he wants to hear it from you. He wants to see you walk up the steps to our heavenly home and knock on the door. And when he throws open the door and smiles at you, throw his arms around you and give you what I'm sure is a great hug. <laughs> and with beaming joy on his face, welcome you in. That's what he wants. That's why he did what he did. That's why he's still doing what he's doing. That's why he's asking us to do what he's asking us to do. He knows it's hard. He knows it is. If anyone else, if anyone knows it's hard, it's him. Before I go too much further, though, we've got one more chapter. One more chapter to read. All right. Matthew chapter 7. The famous, the famous verse. Chap verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. Bum, bum, bum. All right. So we've got this, this scripture that is quoted and thrown about over and over and over again. So, um, Let's go ahead and let's let's finish out a few more verses and then we'll jump over to the New Testament student manual because it is going to ask us to read a few more and they all go together. And that's the thing. <sighs> scriptures, uh, the doctrine of men mingled with scriptures can often bite us uh, very harshly um, if we're not careful. We'll hear that scripture thrown about and we'll think to ourselves, oh man, you know, the Lord said, did say, judge not that ye be not judged. I guess I shouldn't. I guess I shouldn't judge. And that is not what the Savior said. That is not what he, well, he, he, obviously he did say it. He did say, judge not that ye be not judged. But he, he did not mean just go blissfully through life and just say, everyone's good with everything that I've been told not to judge. So everyone is great. Everyone is good. Everyone is grand. No. No. What he said is verse 2 
For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or wilt thou say unto thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thy eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou clearly then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. So the concept being laid out here that the Lord the Lord is giving us is the idea of clean up your own house. Now, he's saying, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. Okay? So if you if you want people to have mercy on you, here's the thing. How can you have mercy if you don't recognize there's a problem first? Right? You can't have mercy unless there's like, oh yes, I see that you've done something wrong. I see that. I acknowledge you've done it. I acknowledge that it's wrong. But I'm going to say that I believe you can change. And I'm going to offer you mercy in regards to that. Right? And that's what we want from the Lord. We don't want the Lord to just ignorantly look upon us and say, Whoa, everything you've done is great. It's all just good and dandy. No, that's not what we want. Because that's not the God that we worship. It's not the God we want to worship. We don't want a God to worship that just lets anything go. We want patience from the Lord that we might have time to change and get better. That same patience, that same allowment to changing it better is what the Lord is asking us to give to others. Now, if we are willfully rebellious and do not want to come to the Lord, the Lord will simply cut us off. He's done it to the Lamanites. He's done it to multiple different kinds of people where he has said, you, are, you have shown to me that you don't care. You're not trying to change. You don't want any of that. I have given you that patience. I have given you the time to change, and you have not taken it. Therefore, I'm stepping back. Because no unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. Plain and simple. Right? Okay. So in that same sense, the Lord expects of us that we grant that mercy and if the willful rebellion, rebelliousness remains and there is no attempt to better oneself, then there is a good chance that we have to remove ourselves and take a step back. That does not mean that we shun the person and we call them mean, nasty names and we do all sorts of terrible things and we do all whatever. No, obviously not. That does not seem Christian in the slightest sense. To begin bashing people and all these different kinds of things aggression is not is very very seldomly required especially when it's offensive not offensive in like oh i'm so offended but like offense defense offensive if you're going to take the first strike the lord sometimes doesn't look highly on that there are occasions there are occasions but typically the lord will command a rebuttal after the first strike has been made by the other party. Nephi was not commanded to kill Laban just to start off with. It was after 
Laban had sought to take away their lives a couple of times, then the Lord said, All right, I've given him a chance. The first thing that Moses did wasn't to go straight in and be like, All right, hand over the children of Egypt or we're going to kill all of your firstborn. He gave Pharaoh the chance. He gave Pharaoh the chance, just like we need to give people the chance first. Obviously, we're not going to go out and say, well, I've given you enough chances, now it's time to die. No, we're not going to kill people, obviously. There is provision for when you're trying to defend yourself or your family, um, people who serve in the military, those types of things. But we are not to go out and just attack people for any reason unless specifically commanded by the Lord. But that does not mean that we are not to pass judgment. We are, what we are not to do is we are not to pass final judgment. And we should especially not be judging when we ourselves have a, a beam in our eyes. The Lord explains that. And to kind of break it down into today's terms, if you're not aware of moat and beam and those terminologies, the Lord is saying... You know, you're walking down the street and you look over and you see, oh, your friend has a splinter in his eye. Maybe it's a little twig. He's got something sticking out of his eye. And you say, oh, my goodness. Uh, here, let me pull you that stick out of your eye. When you have a two by four sticking on the side of your eye. And the Lord says, yours is much more important to take care of. And you have the ability to take care of it. Set in order your own house. That doesn't, no, so here's the thing, the balance, the balance. That doesn't mean that we, get, that we cloister ourselves off and we say, well, until I'm perfect, I can't help anyone else. No. The Lord is asking us to fully be aware of our own shortcomings. To fully be aware of them and to be in the process of working on them. If we will do that and we go to help others, we will have the appropriate patience, long-suffering, and mercy to help them because we know that we ourselves are not perfect. It's a hot topic to talk about, for sure. But it's one the Lord expects us to get right. Otherwise, why would he have talked about it? So, let's jump over to the New Testament student manual before I get too far on my rant of, you know, the doctrine of men mingled with scriptures. Let's see what the brethren have to say about um, this whole thing. So, Matthew 7, 1, judging righteous judgment. And of course, uh, so Joseph Smith's translation clarifies the, the Savior's words, judge not unrighteously that ye be not judged but judge righteous judgment. Uh, so President Dallin H. Oaks, who was a judge, um, of course, is the one who tended to speak on this. So he, said, he explained that these teachings and their application, basing his comments on the principle that there are two kinds of judging, final, in, final judgments, which are forbidden to make, and intermediate judgments, which we are directed to make, but upon righteous principles. He says, first, a righteous judgment must, by definition, be intermediate. If we, it will refrain from declaring that a person has been assured of exaltation or from dismissing a person as being irrevocably bound for hellfire. 
It will refrain from declaring that a person has forfeited all opportunity for exaltation or even all opportunity for a useful role in the work of the Lord. The gospel is a gospel of hope, and none of us is authorized to deny the power of the atonement to bring about a cleansing of individual sins, forgiveness, and a reformation of life on appropriate conditions. Second, a righteous judgment will be guided by the Spirit of the Lord, not by anger, revenge, jealousy, or self-interest. Third, the, to be righteous, an intermediate judgment must be within our stewardship. We should not presume to exercise an, an, and act upon judgments that are outside our personal responsibilities. Fourth, fourth, we should, if possible, refrain from judging until we have adequate knowledge of the facts. Whew, that's a big one. Um, and a fifth principle of the righteous... In, Sorry, a fifth principle of a righteous intermediate judgment is that whenever possible, we will refrain from judging people and only judge situations. We can we can set and act upon high standards for ourselves, or or our homes without condemning those who do otherwise. Sixth, forgiveness is a companion principle to this commandment. In modern revelation, the Lord has declared, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. Seventh, a final ingredient or principle of a righteous judgment is that it will apply righteous standards. That comes from um, his... Uh, President Oaks' talk, Judge Not and Judging, uh, from a conference talk in, um, or from the Ensign, uh, August 1999. I, I would suggest that if you have, um, have time and are curious about the subject of judging and judging others, uh, I suggest give that a look. I, I believe there's a lot there. I mean, just looking at the reading here, there's a lot that's been trimmed out, obviously, uh, to kind of try and grab the the key points but i this is something that's so important in today's world where we we hear all the time that um well god gave god, god forgave everyone you should just love everyone and just let everything happen and all this kind of stuff well the lord did love everyone and he does love everyone and he loves them but he expects things of them it's not just free reign. Let's continue before I get lost. Um, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, judge not. So President Thomas S. Monson shared the following story, illustrating the need to refrain from judging others. A young couple, Lisa and John, moved into a new neighborhood. One morning, while they were eating breakfast, Lisa looked out the window and watched her next-door neighbor hanging out her wash. That laundry's not clean, Lisa exclaimed. Our neighbor doesn't know how to get cl clothes clean. John looked on, but remained silent. Every time her neighbor would hang out her wash to dry, Lisa would make the same comments. After a few, a few weeks later, Lisa was surprised to glance out at her, her window and see a nice, clean wash hanging on her neighbor's yard. She said to her husband, Look, John, she's finally learned how to wash correctly. I wonder how she did it. John replied, well, dear, I have the answer for you. I have the answer for you. You'll be interested to know that I got up early this morning and washed our windows. I'd like to share with you a few thoughts concerning how we view each other. 
Are we looking through a window which needs, which needs cleaning? Are we making judgments when we don't have all the facts? What do we see when we look at others? What judgments do we make about them? None of us is perfect. I know of no one who would profess to be so. And yet, for some reason, despite our own imperfections, we have a tendency to point out those of others. Point out those of others. We make judgments concerning their actions or interactions, or inactions. Sorry. There is really no way we can know the heart, the intentions, or the circumstances of someone who might who might say or do something. We find reason to criticize. Thus, the commandment: judge not. This goes back to what I was saying about get your own house in order. Her neighbor's over there cleaning her laundry. She is actively trying to become clean. Lisa, whatever her name was, all she was doing was just sitting around and judging. She wasn't actively trying to make her life better. And therefore, her judgments were not righteous judgments. She sat from afar without all the facts. She didn't get to know her neighbor, I don't think. She didn't go over and talk to her. This kind of leads us back into moat and the beam. The Greek word translated as moat refers to a tiny speck, a chip, or a splinter. The Greek word translated as beam refers to a large wooden beam used in constructing houses. The Savior's reference to a moat and beam is an example of hyperbole, a figure of speech that uses exaggeration to make a point. The Savior's teaching in these verses turns our focus from other people's faults to our own. There's so much here. There's so much. I would, I would honestly suggest that as we continue to study, as we continue to study the New Testament and push, for, and push forward, maybe go out and buy a Bible from um, Deseret Book or from a church or from wherever you, you want to get one. You, you can pick up a Bible for, for fairly cheap. You know, just go and get one. And cross-reference everything in the New Testament, back to this, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is, this is it. This is the core of it. This is where everything is. And next week we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the miracles and things like that. But there's so much here. There's so much. This was a life-changing event for, many, for the people who were there, who heard this. Is it the same for us? It should be. It should be. Verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your, ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and again, and turn again and rend you. That one's kind of a, a big one. I'm going to let that one sit. And I am going to refrain from commenting on that one. And I suggest that you study that one out personally and um, ask the Lord to expound on that one. Yep, that's what I'm going to do there. Uh, verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. 
Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things unto him that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. All right. The manual, the student manual. All right. Ask, seek, knock. Man, this is powerful. This is a powerful commandment that the Lord has given us. It goes back to the prayer. It goes back to revelation. It goes back to all these things in that personal relationship with the Lord. One of my, uh, one of my personal favorites, um, who, especially on the topic of revelation, who someone who really helped me um, to understand personal revelation better, Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, taught that the Lord will give us what we need, not necessarily what we ask for. Our Father in heaven has invited you to express your needs hopes, and desires unto him. That should not be done in a spirit of negotiation, but rather as a willingness to obey to obey his will, no matter what direction that takes. His invitation, ask and you shall receive, does not assure that you will get what you want. It does not guarantee that if worthy, you will get what you need. As judged by our Father in heaven, by a Father that loves you perfectly, who wants your eternal happiness even more than you than do you. And that comes from trust in the Lord. I believe that's his his conference talk from 1995. You can find it in the November ensign 1995. Another one that I would I would suggest. I would if you want to know more about Revelation. There are obvious spots in the scriptures that you can look up, use a topical guide, use the Bible dictionary, use those things. But as a companion reference to those items, I suggest reading a lot of Elder Richard G. Scott's works, uh, his talks and things. He really focused on personal revelation and our relationship with the Lord. I personally have come to know the Lord better because of the things that he said because of his teachings. And I am very grateful to him for that, for the sacrifices that he made um, in order to allow that to happen. <sighs> Continuing in the student manual, whereas much of the Sermon on the Mount was directed to the multitude, the Joseph Smith translation teaches that the words of the, that the Savior's words recorded in, in Matthew 7, 1 through 28 were directed to his disciples. Um, so, another thing to keep in mind that this whole section, verses 1 through 28, uh, were apparently directed more to the apostles. I'll let you decide what that means for you. I'll let you talk to the Lord and figure that out yourself. You need to develop that relationship with him. I'm not going to spoon feed it to you. All right. Um, verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. 
Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather, gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. But every tree that bringeth forth, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. All I'm going to say in conjunction with that is think about that in terms of judging and judgment. When you plant a tree and the tree starts to grow, and it starts to grow and you see something that might, you don't, you don't immediately look at it and say, oh, well, this tree is, this tree is bad. We've got to chop it down right now. It looks, it looks, there's something kind of weird with it. We're going to chop it down. And sorry, one of my kids is making noise in the background. Um, we're going to chop it down and we're not going to even going to worry about it. We're just going to, we're just going to chop it down. The Lord's saying, no, give it time and see the fruits that come from it. See what comes from the tree first. If the tree produces bad fruit, and I would even suggest we look to the parable, to the story in Jacob chapter 5, where the Lord had a tree that produced both evil and good fruit. And so he worked with it diligently, and he tried everything he could to, to bring forth the good fruit. And the good fruit, he took the good fruit. Every, the trees that produce good fruit, he, he worked with diligently. Even the ones who produce bad fruit, he worked with. And sometimes he chopped pieces off, and he took pieces apart, and he tried to figure it out. But in the end, and this is where the Lord comes in, in the end, the Lord, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. The Lord will make those final judgments. He will make those final judgments, but he doesn't expect us to eat bad fruit. All right, moving on. Once again, pray about that. Talk to the Lord. I'm sure he will expound more upon that for you and your personal life. All right, verse 21. Um, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. All right, all right. There's a footnote on will. Um, it's just the will of God. And, um, let's see. I just want to look at some of these footnotes real quick. Um, so let's continue verse 22 many will say unto me in that day Lord, Lord have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works and then will I profess unto them I never knew you depart from me ye that work iniquity so the Joseph Smith translation changes I never knew you to and then will I say Ye never knew me. That will be <laughs> that would be a hard thing to hear. Therefore, uh, yeah, let's talk about that for just a second. Ye never knew me. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I don't know. Maybe you've maybe you've heard the story of um, 
there's three there's three men who reach heaven uh, or they're they're <clears throat> they die there's the three men who are waiting in the, in the waiting room before the final judgment and they are one by one called into a room by uh, a man and the first one sits down across the table from this man who is acting as the administrator of heaven and he says all right well tell me a little bit about um your life and tell me a little bit about what you know about jesus and <clears throat> excuse me um the first man he kind of says well i know a little bit about it you know and he kind of explains some bible stories that he'd heard when he was a kid and he explained that he'd done his, his best to live a, a a righteous life and whatnot and and he explained all these different things and and the, the man turns to him and says oh well that's very good um all right then uh why don't you go ahead and step through this door behind me and uh welcome to heaven good job thank you for coming and the man is excited and he goes into heaven and uh, finds his way and the next man gets up knowing it's his turn walks in and um sits down and the man says or uh, the man the administrator says all right well uh, why don't you tell me a little about your life and then explain to me what you know about jesus and the man broke into a diatribe of all these wonderful deeds and how he had started these charities and he had done all these different things and um, he was a leader in his community and, and and then he broke into explaining in detail all these different Bible stories of Jesus and the different uh, academic writings that he had read or, or even written on on the life of Jesus and how you know all these different things and whatnot and his his complaints about Jesus and whatnot and and the administrator's like well that was was very impressive. Uh, you seem to have spent a lot of time on that. Um, you must be very proud of that. And the man says, well, of course I am. You know, I, I feel like that should show how, how righteous I am. So, well, all right. Well, you know, welcome to heaven. Uh, go ahead and go through this door behind me. And then, you know, in some fashion, the third man knows it's his turn to go in and he, he opens the door and comes in and he sits down and looks up across at the man across the table from uh, the administrator and he falls off his chair onto his knees and he worships him, and he says, Lord, forgive me. And of the three men, he was the only one who recognized that that administrator was the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, it's a story. Obviously, I don't know that's how it's going to happen. And there are certain things, but it's a story to try and teach you something. And then will I profess unto them, Ye never knew me. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And I will profess unto them, Ye never knew me. Depart from me. Moving on to verse 24. Uh, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken unto him as a... Unto a I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be like a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall thereof. The Lord knows that adversity and trials and problems are going to arise in our lives. He knows that. We know that. We know that there's going to be issues. We know there's going to be problems. 
We live with all these other people on the planet. We ourselves are fallen creatures. There's going to be problems. Whether we create them for ourselves, they're created by others, or it's just the way life is. There's going to be problems. The Lord knows that. He knows that that's coming. And he tells us right here, I've given you these things that you might have a safe place to reside upon, to hold to when those hard times come. Now, when he's not saying, I'm going to send floods, I'm going to send rain, and I'm going to try and beat you up, and then you better be holding on tight to that rock, otherwise I'm going to destroy you. No, he's saying, I have given you this rock. I have given you this foundation. I've marked it out and said, this is the spot. If you're here, you're safe. And it's by our own actions that we choose whether we are on that rock or whether we're down on the beach when the tsunami rolls in. Verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So it looks like I missed a few things in the student manual. So we'll jump back a little bit. Verse 21, uh, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So President Dallin H. Oaks taught that, taught that it is not enough for us just to know and profess that the gospel is true. The conversion Jesus required for those who would enter the kingdom of heaven was far more than just being converted converted to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. To testify is to know and to declare. The gospel challenge us, challenges us to be converted, which requires us to do and become. If any of us relies solely upon our knowledge and testimony of the gospel, we are in the same position as the blessed, as the blessed but still unfinished apostles whom Jesus challenged to be converted. Jumping over to I Never Knew You, the Joseph Smith translation, uh, I Never Knew You, the Joseph Smith translation changed I Never Knew You to Ye Never Knew Me. Similarly, the Joseph Smith translation changed I Know You Not to Ye Know Me Not, later in Matthew 25, 12. Uh, we might ask ourselves, is it possible to be active in the church programs but not have the gospel active in our hearts? It all comes down to that. It comes back down to that. The Lord has asked us, and the Lord has pressed us, and he has asked us, where do our, where does our focus lie? Are we intent on worshiping him? Are we intent on becoming like him? Or do we follow these ritual proceedings to make ourselves look good? I can speak as one living in Utah that I know that a lot of times we in Utah, living among so other mem- living among so many other members of the church, oftentimes there is a cultural stigma, that uh, need for prestige. In oh well, you know, I I do this and this, and so, you know, I should. I'm a <clears throat> I'm a bishop. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm an elders quorum president. So you know, I should be respected because no. You should go, um, maybe you should travel a little bit out of the, out of the state to other places where the stigma is a little bit reversed. Oh, you're a member of the church? Oh, uh, 
Uh, you're one of those Mormons. Okay, well, um, I think it's time I gotta go. Sorry, I'll see you later. At that point, it becomes not so much more, not, not the cultural thing, as it is, what do you truly believe? Do you really believe this? Are you really trying to become like the Savior? And I, I fully understand that there are members of the church here living in Utah who do live that way, who are trying that way, and I commend you for that. It is my hope and prayer that we all do so. I testify that the Lord is seeking for our eternal welfare, that he has laid out the path, as I said before, because he wants to see us again. The Lord hasn't laid these things out and said, I want you to do these things because I think it'd be funny to make you do these things and I want to see if you'll do them. He hasn't created this arbitrary list of things to do just because it's an arbitrary list of things. What are the two great commandments? Elder Christofferson wrote a piece just not too long ago on this in the Young Adults um, magazine that the church puts out. And he said, the two great commandments of the Lord are to love thy neighbor as thyself, which is a wonderful and powerful commandment. But without the first and great commandment, it would be hollow and self-serving. And the first commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. With everything you have, you should love the Lord. And that love for the Lord should translate into loving and caring for your neighbors and for those around you. That is what he's asking us to do. To do everything we can to align our will with his. Because it is the only way for us to achieve happiness. It is the rock upon which if we build, we cannot fall. It is where we will find peace. It is where we will find joy. And then, because of what we have found, we will seek to bring others to it. To bring them to the safety of the Lord. I testify of these things. I testify that the power of the Lord is alive and well. The Lord lives and loves you. And I say these things ever so humbly. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.